The Holy Gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ according to Matthew. Glory to you, Lord Christ. After six days, Jesus took Peter and James and John, his brother, with him up the high mountain just by themselves. And he was transfigured before them. And his face shone like the sun. And his clothes became bright as light. And behold, Moses and Elijah appeared speaking with him. And Peter said, Lord, it is good that we are here. If you wish, let me make three tents, one for you and one for Moses and one for Elijah. And as he was speaking, a bright cloud overshadowed them and a voice came from the cloud. This is my beloved son with whom I'm well pleased. Listen to him. And when the disciples heard the voice, they fell on their faces and they were terrified. But Jesus came up and touched them and said, rise, have no fear. And when they lifted up their eyes, they saw only Jesus. And as they were going down the mountain, he commanded them not to tell of the vision until the Son of Man had been raised from the dead. This is the gospel of the Lord. Praise to you, Lord Christ. Let us pray. Father, we believe that you inspired your servant Matthew to record these words. And we believe these words not only had power in the day that Matthew wrote them, but these words have power today because they're inspired by your Holy Spirit. And so we pray, come Holy Spirit, open this word for us now, that we would be changed to be more and more like Jesus. For we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. I invite you to be seated. Where is your life headed? Where is it headed? Is it a good forecast? Not so good forecast? Where's your life headed? That's really what transfiguration is about. Is giving us a picture, if we're in Christ, of where our life is truly headed. If you can grab a hold of this this morning, this Feast of Transfiguration is telling you that if you're in Christ, your life is headed towards transfiguration. That your life is about one day being fully glorified just like Jesus was glorified on that Mount of Transfiguration that you will be so alive as a human being that you will shine. Irenaeus, one of the early church fathers, said this famous phrase, the glory of God is man fully alive. In other words, God gets the most glory when the pinnacle of his creation, humanity, those he's made in his own image, redeemed by the blood of the lamb, as we grow to be like his son Jesus as we are fully alive as he intends. God gets the glory. The difficulty we have with 
this concept of being glorified, this, this concept of transfiguration, is that we experience so much ingloriousness in our lives. We experience so much of an incompleteness and a lack of satisfaction in our lives. The signs are everywhere in our lives that we are not living into some sort of glorified existence. Rather, ingloriousness is always tugging at us from every corner. The signs are everywhere. Last night, I took my youngest daughter to a daddy-daughter dance. It was hosted by the Carrollton Police Association. It was great, wonderful night. You know, hundreds and hundreds of dads out with their daughters dancing. And, 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 and as we're out, Kirley and I found ourselves at the bingo table. And, you know, they put all these different events and activities. And we're at the bingo table. And, and we're there for quite a while. And she really got into bingo. And I was actually getting a little worried about how much she's getting into bingo. And, 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 but we're at the bingo table and we're not winning. Like, we're just, we're not winning and we go round after round, and we're not winning. And, 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 and something began to change inside of me. I'm watching all these other dads with their daughters around the room, and, they, and, and some of them are winning, and some of them are winning multiple times. And there's sort of a growing resentment within me of like, why are these dads, you know, able to be winners in front of their daughters, and, and I'm not? And, and as I was just about to stand up and accuse some of them of bringing whiteout and Sharpies into the room with them, they called out I-44, and oh, bingo, we, we won. I was a winner, and, and all that faded away. And, and, and my daughter went up, and she picked her little teddy bear, and, and it was just, it was, it was, it was amazing. I mean, and, and, and here's the thing. Here's, what, here's, what's, here's what's amazing, is it really walking out of that place, it wasn't about the, my daughter's joy over winning the teddy bear. It was that I was able to look those other fathers in the eyes and say, I'm a winner, but how pathetic is that? I mean, seriously, how much inglorious thoughts have I obviously got going through my head? How much lack of satisfaction in my own life is going on? How much a sense of brokenness and yearning for something else is going on that I get that excited about winning at bingo? The truth of the matter is, as C.S. Lewis says, that we are far too easily pleased. The gospel surrounding this feast of transfiguration is telling us that our lives are headed towards glory. Not just in heaven, but even now, step by step, measure by measure, that that glory is being revealed in our lives. This is what transfiguration is about. And as we look at this story of transfiguration, if you turn with me in your Bibles to Matthew chapter 17, you see in this story of transfiguration three things. We see the glory of Christ. We, we get a picture of Jesus Christ's glory. But not only do we see a picture of Jesus' glory, in Matthew 17, we see a picture of a Christian's glory. Yes, we actually see a promise of what will be realized in our own lives as Christ followers. But not only do we see Christ's glory and a Christian's glory, but finally in this text, we see the cost of that glory. 
We see what it will cost Jesus for you and I to move out of this ingloriousness and instead be glorified before him. See, first, we, on the Mount of Transfiguration, see the glory of Christ. Look at verse 2. He was transfigured before them. And his face shone like the sun, and his clothes became white as light. Matthew is trying to grab a hold of language to describe what they're seeing. Limited human language to describe an encounter with the glory of God. They're seeing God's glory. They're seeing the glory of God and they're trying to put into words. It's, he was transfigured, his face like the sun, the, the, the clothing was white as light. And this visualizing of God's glory as a sort of a shiny light experience makes sense because again and again in scripture, as people encounter the glory of God, what they're encountering is they're encountering everything that is impressive and beautiful and awe-inspiring about the nature and character of God. To have God's glory shown to us is to see this full expression of everything beautiful about God, everything amazing about God, everything incredible about God. As Tim Keller paraphrasing Jonathan Edwards once said, religious people find God useful, gospel people find God beautiful. They're seeing the glory of God. And this, this shiny lighting example is seen again back in Exodus chapter 34 when Moses comes down the mountain with the Ten Commandments. We're told he did not know in Exodus 34, verse 29, he did not know that his face shone because he had been talking with God. Aaron and all the people of Israel saw Moses, and behold, the skin of his face shone, and they were afraid to come near him. That Moses, in the presence of God, had the glory reflecting off of him so much that it, his face shone before them, reflecting that glory. That glory of God that was so potent and so powerful that when the, glory of the God, when the glory of God filled the tent of meeting in the book of Exodus and through the wilderness wanderings, that the people of God could not even come into the tent of meeting. God was so full and present inside that tent of meeting with his glory. But here's what's cool. Is Peter, James, and John aren't seeing a Moses-like experience. I mean, they see Moses. We'll get back to that. But they're not seeing a Moses-like experience. They're seeing not Jesus reflecting the glory of God. They're seeing Jesus showing forth his own glory. Jesus is showing forth his own glory before them. And this explains what the blunder is all about with the three tents. You know that weird little section of the story where you know, Peter goes up in verse 4 and says... You know, let's make three tents. And, 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 and then verse 5, the, the cloud comes down and speaks. You get the sense that when God speaks from the cloud, when the Father speaks from the cloud saying, this is my son, my beloved son, whom I'm well pleased, listen to him. It's, you get the sense it's kind of a rebuke to Peter, like Peter, again, is putting his foot in his mouth. And, and we get that pretty clearly in, in Luke's version of this, where in Luke chapter 9, verse 33, Luke adds that Peter didn't know what he was saying. But what's the big deal with the tents? 
I mean, it's a nice gesture, isn't it? Why does Peter kind of get in trouble for the suggestion of the three tents? I mean, what's wrong with, it, with offering to do something, you know, for Jesus and Moses and Elijah? Well, here's the problem. It's not as some people have said, this idea that Peter wanted to stay on top of the mountain. You probably heard that in sermons before. And it, it's a good pastoral application. You know, that you can't stay up on those glory experiences. You got to come back down to reality and minister to the world. But that's not what the text is really suggesting. Here's what the text suggests. Verse 3, Peter and James and John see the two big guns of Israel show up, Moses and Elijah. I mean, they are gobsmacked. They can't imagine what they're beholding. Moses and Elijah, the biggest heroes in all of Israel, are there talking with Jesus, verse 3. So verse 4, Peter says, let's build three tents. One for Jesus, one for Moses, one for Elijah. What Peter is effectively saying is he doesn't understand what this transfiguration of Jesus means. Because here's what he's saying. He's saying, wow, Jesus, I'm going to make a tent for you and for Moses and Elijah. Because clearly, like you have risen to the level of Moses and Elijah. Jesus, do you see what's happening here? You are on par with Moses and Elijah. And verse 5, the voice of the Father comes down and says, This is my son. He has not risen to the height of a mere prophet. This is the only begotten son of the Father that existed for all time, before all time. This is the second person of the Holy Trinity you're beholding. He's not to share the same size tent as Moses and Elijah. This is God before you. As Augustine said of this, Moses and Elijah wrote the law and the prophets, but it was from this one that they were filled. Peter isn't understanding yet what this transfiguration of Jesus means. That he's beholding God in his presence. Nothing's changed in Jesus. Here's what's important to realize. Nothing's changed. As Joel Green says, it's not as if Jesus got glory added on top of him in this moment. No, suddenly in this moment, the glory that was always present in him shone forth out of him. They could finally see the full picture of Jesus. But here's what's really cool. In verse 7, after they're freaked out by the voice, what does it say? Jesus touched them and said, rise, have no fear. And in that moment, it says they looked up and they beheld Jesus only. In other words, the same Jesus that they'd known before the transfiguration was still here present with them. The same Jesus they'd broken bread with and, and, and walked with these, these few years. The same Jesus who'd become not just rabbi, but such a close personal friend. And they knew who knew them and loved them and cared for them. That same Jesus was present even after revealing his glory. But now they had simply seen so much more of who this Jesus was and is. As Peter would go on many years later, decades later, to reflect on this moment, he says these words. Peter clearly finally understood the full weight of the transfiguration when he says in 2 Peter verse, chapter 1, verse 16, we did not follow cleverly devised myths when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. 
For when he received honor and glory from God the Father, and the voice was born to him from the majestic glory, this is my beloved Son with whom I'm well pleased, we ourselves heard this very voice born from heaven, for we were with him on that holy mountain. Peter and James and John get a window, a picture into the fullness of who they've been following. They see his glory. Everything impressive, everything glorious about him is put on display in that moment. Fair is the sunshine, fairer still the moonlights, and all the twinkling starry host. Jesus shines brighter. Jesus shines purer than all the angels heaven can boast. They're seeing the full picture of the glory of Jesus. But it doesn't stay there. See, on the Mount of Transfiguration, they're also not just seeing the glory of Christ, but they're seeing the glory of a Christian, a Christ follower. They're seeing a promise made to them, even if they don't fully understand it yet. See, in verse 1, we're told that it was after six days that they went up the mountain. And you got to say, after six days of what? Six days after what moment? As commentators have pointed out, Matthew is not very commonly giving marks of timing and dates. Right? The, the story just sort of flows. But here, for some reason, Matthew includes this reference. After six days, he took them up the mountain. What happened six days earlier? Well, what happens before chapter 17? Chapter 16. And what's in chapter 16? At the end of chapter 16, it is where Peter recognizes that Jesus is more than just a rabbi, and he says, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. And then what does Jesus say in verse 24? Then Jesus told his disciples, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. Follow me. Take up my, your cross like I'm taking up my cross. Follow me. Live my life. This language of following after Jesus is the language of a disciple. A disciple following a master. Right? A disciple comes to a rabbi and says, I want to be like you. I want to read scripture the way you read scripture. I want to interpret and live out scripture the way you live out scripture. I want to live your life. That's, that's the disciple-rabbi relationship. And so when Jesus says to a person, come and follow me, he's inviting us not just to learn, but to begin living his own very life. So he says in chapter 16, take up your cross, deny yourself daily, and follow me. And then in chapter 17, six days later, he takes Peter and James and John up a mountain and is transfigured before him as a way of saying, when you follow me, I want to give you a picture of where it's going. I want you to know what ultimately this discipleship is leading you to. If you follow me, yes, it's going to be a cross-bearing. It's going to be self-denial. It's going to be difficult, more difficult than anything you've ever done. But here is the future picture. A disciple who follows after his rabbi will be like his rabbi. If you follow after me, look, transfiguration, this glory is your future too as my disciples. These stories are linked purposely together to show that this transfiguration 
is where a disciple's life is heading. And it's why Paul uses the same word transfiguration in 2 Corinthians chapter 3 when he's talking about what's going on daily in our lives through the gospel, through the Holy Spirit. 2 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 18, same word, transfiguration. And we all, with unveiled face, the Moses reference, with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image, are being transfigured into the same image, from one degree of glory to another, for this comes from the Lord, who is the Spirit's. One of the church fathers, Athanasius, was famous for saying, and it can be misunderstood if you don't hear it the right way, but was famous for saying, God became man so that men might become gods. And it doesn't mean some pantheon of gods. What he means is that God became like us so that we would become like him. Not God, but like him in the image of God as we were intended in our creation. Now through Jesus growing into that glorious picture. I mean, this idea of sanctification, this idea of glorification, we, we see it as we're parents. Right? We, 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 we have babies those of us who, who are blessed with babies, we, we look on those babies or we look on the babies in our family, and extended family. And what do we do when we look at them? We think, where is this life heading? What will this child be? Right? We have all kinds of hopes and dreams. And we, and we wonder, but we don't know, do we? We have no, we have no idea. We, we look and we have hopes and we think, man. And then we see progression and we see challenge. We see all of it. And you're seeing a transformation, right? You're seeing the child growing more and more into this adult version of themselves. And some of it's glorious and some of it's not. But we don't know. We don't know what this child will grow into. This week, we were overjoyed that our eldest daughter, Annabelle, was accepted into YWAM's Discipleship Training School in London, England starting next month. And this, for those who understand or know what YWAM and DTS is, I mean, an intensive training school on missions and worldview, but then done through the lens of, you know, in this case, a creative artistic photography. How do I apply these gifts God has given me for missions and for ministry in the world? And we were, we were so proud. But, and, and, and as we've been talking about it, people are like, oh, you must be so proud. And we are. But let's be clear. We had no idea, right? You look at a child, you have no idea. I was just ho hoping my kids wouldn't be axe murderers. Like that was, that was kind of like just, just don't show up on America's Most Wanted. Like that's the goal. And then, I mean, everything from there is just great. I mean, it's amazing. We don't know what our children are going to grow into. We see them progress, but we don't know. But here's the amazing thing. God the Father, when he knew you before the foundation of the world, he knew exactly who you would grow into. You'd grow into be like his son, Jesus. That's what transfiguration means. The Father knew from the moment that he chose us before the foundation of the world, he knew exactly where our lives were ultimately headed. Glory. Transformation and glory. Another way to see it, if you look at the book of Revelation, and in Revelation 22, verse 13, you get that famous phrase, Jesus says, I'm the Alpha and the Omega. 
the beginning and the end. And, and that, that phrase, alpha and omega, beginning and the end, actually is a very key couple Greek words in it. The beginning is the word arche, where we get the word archaeology, right? First. And so Jesus is in one sense saying when he says, I'm the alpha, the omega, the beginning and the end, he's saying, I'm the arche, I'm the archetypes, I'm, I'm the prototype, I'm the picture of what humanity truly should be, right? Here is the prototype. And then, of course, when I look at my own life and I go, well, he's the prototype and something broke in the machine factory by the time it came to me, right? Like, here's the prototype and here's my inglorious self. But then he goes on to say, but I'm the telos, I'm the end, I'm your destiny, I'm the goal, I'm the fulfillment. Not only am I the archetype in the beginning, but I'm also your end. I'm where you're heading. I am your future. Put it this way. The, 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 the telos, the end, the destiny of an acorn is an oak tree. The telos of a Christ follower is to be like Christ. As C.S. Lewis wrote in The Weight of Glory, he said it's a serious thing to live in a society of possible gods and goddesses. To remember that the dullest and most uninteresting person you talk to may one day be a creature which if you saw it now, you would be strongly tempted to worship or else a horror and a corruption such as you now meet only in a nightmare. All day long, we are in some degree helping each other to one or other of these destinations. It is in the light of these overwhelming possibilities that we should conduct all our dealings with one another. All friendships, all loves, all play, all politics. There are no ordinary people. You have never talked to a mere mortal. As Jesus says in Matthew 13, 43, then the righteous will shine like the sun in the kingdom of their father. But you may ask, how can that be? I ask how that can be. How could it be? When I, when I look at this incredible glory of Christ, and when I look at the glory of a Christian that's promised, and then I look at my own life, and I see such a presence of ingloriousness, when I recognize again and again my imperfection on a daily basis, how could this be true of me? I remember Halloween a couple years ago. This kid came to the door, and I had no costume on, and he was dressed as Iron Man, right? The Avengers movies you know, were so exciting. So the Iron Man came to my door, and he looked at me. He was, looking, he was like seven, and he looked at me. He goes, you look like Iron Man. I was like, you mean I look like Robert Downey Jr.? Like, that's the nicest thing anyone's ever said to me. And he said, but your face is a lot rounder. <laughs> so I'm the fat Robert Downey Jr. <laughs> we're, we're so aware of our imperfections. We're so aware of our ingloriousness. And I mean, and as a comment like that will stick in your craw for years, right? It, it's that hard moment in a beautiful day that makes the whole day hard. It's our experiences of our limitations that make everything awful. We cling to our ingloriousness again and again. We bump into it and we struggle to believe that it could be true for us, that God is one day going to make us shine like Jesus. 
And so Jesus finishes this Mount of Transfiguration story, this scene, this moment, this window, not just with a picture of his glory and the picture of our glory, but the picture of glory's cost. He says, I get it. I know how much work it's going to take to make you glorious. And I'm going to take it all on myself. That's why in verse 3, it says that Moses and Elijah were talking with him. And you got to say, what were they talking about? Well, Luke gives us a little window into what they're talking about. In Luke's version of this, in chapter 9, verse 31, it says, Moses and Elijah appeared, and they were speaking to him of his departure, which he was about to accomplish at Jerusalem. Departure is literally in the Greek, the word exodus. Moses and Elijah appear to Jesus on the Mount of Transfiguration. He's glorified, giving us this promise and this picture, and they're speaking about what's about to happen in Jerusalem. His exodus. That word is loaded. Just as in the first exodus, God, through Moses, led his people out of bondage in Egypt into the promised land. So now in this true, new, full, complete exodus, Jesus will lead us in exodus out of our bondage, this time to sin and death, and into the promised land of new life and glory and transfiguration. But it will go the route of Jerusalem. At this point in the Gospels, his whole orientation moves toward Jerusalem. This is the cost. The cross is the cost of what must be done in order to make the inglorious ones glorious. He must take on our ingloriousness so that we would be made glorious. He must take on our sin. We are given his righteousness. As Jude verse 24 and 25 says, now to him, Jesus, who's able to keep you from stumbling and present you blameless, blameless before the presence of his glory with great joy to the only God our Savior through Jesus Christ, our Lord. Be glory, majesty, dominion, authority before all time and now and forever. This is what it costs for us to be made glorious. He's fully aware of how broken you and I are. And he promises it yet on his way to Jerusalem. Part of the reason we worship the way we do at Christ Church. We do it somewhat formally. You know, we want to be relatable. We want to be connected. We certainly want to be accessible and welcoming. But there is a certain degree of formality in the way we worship, right? And there's different churches that worship in different kind of ways. Like we have processions of crosses and men in dresses and all kinds of things that we do to indicate a different kind of approach to worship. And here's the reason. Because we are committed to every time we gather as the people of God, inglorious as our week has been, I need you to taste a bit of glory. To taste a bit of that glory of Christ revealed on the Mount of Transfiguration. To taste even just a bit of the glory that is going to be revealed more and more in you. And to see each time we gather the cost of our glorification. And that's why we invite our friends and our neighbors and our coworkers and our schoolmates. 
come and taste the glory of God, the glory of the gospel, the glory of this promise. Where's your life headed? If you're a Christian, your life is headed towards transfiguration. No matter what kind of week you've had, that's where you're headed. You're headed to this mountain of transfiguration. I want to close with a benediction from Dr. Zeus. In Oh, the Places You Go, it ends with these words, which I think somehow beautifully through the gospel lens of the transfiguration actually apply. So be your name Buxbaum or Bixby or Bray or Mordecai, Ali, Van Allen, O'Shea. You're off to great places. Today is your day. Your mountain is waiting. So get on your way. In the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Amen.